Welcome, everyone. My name is Jonathan Arias, and I'm the host of the Building a New America podcast. Before I get started, I want to share with you a little bit about myself and how I got to this project. So we're launching it today in 2019, but it actually started back in 2012 when I became a public defender. And throughout my career, people would always ask me, how can you represent criminals? And my response is always that I actually represent human beings, mothers, fathers, daughters, people who face serious problems that most of us don't have to go through. So it's not as simple as just labeling somebody as a criminal. And what's interesting is that throughout my career, I would feel more like a counselor, like a therapist, rather than a lawyer. And that's because I would have to understand all the circumstances and the conditions that led my clients to court. It wasn't a simple task. What I also realized is that many of these laws that were originally intended to protect people were being utilized to abuse them. That's very frustrating. So, and it wasn't until I went back to why these laws were originally enacted that I started to discover this. So by that same token, I became obsessed trying to figure out many of the structural and personal issues that I was seeing in court all the time. So I started reading into history, philosophy, psychology, literally anything that could give me an answer, I looked into it. So now this leads me into this project. Building a new America is about starting from first principles. It's about going back to the basics. It's about reconsidering all the documents and policies that continue to shape our lives today, even though they were enacted centuries ago. You know, the founders of our country, they had a vision, and that vision was embodied in the Constitution. But if we're completely honest with ourselves, it was deeply flawed, and there's no argument about that. A person like me, for example, was considered property, and women didn't even exist. Right now in the news, we're witnessing one of the most, the biggest struggles amongst the three branches of government, the judiciary, executive, and the legislative. And what I've realized is that between these battles, in that tension, everyone uses the Constitution to justify their beliefs. And the Constitution was deliberately enacted to have certain tensions. The tension between the state and federal government, who has the power? The tension between public and private interest. How much freedom should we give corporations before the government has to come in and regulate them? And then we have the tension between liberty and equality. How much liberty are we willing to sacrifice for equality? And how much equality should we put at risk for liberty? So this leads me to tonight's episode. Tonight we're considering one of the most integral institutions in our society, policing. Tonight I'm gonna to welcome on Professor Alex Vitale and Professor Ann Kamet. So tonight we have Professor Ann Kamet, and she's a Senior Associate Dean of Academic Affairs and Professor of Law at CUNY School of Law. Before her role as Dean, she directed the family law practice and taught several classes, including poverty law and social change. In 2017, Professor Kamet was named the Outstanding Professor of Law at her school. In addition, her scholarship explores the intersectional legal issues of race, gender, poverty, mass criminalization, and the family. She's a recognized expert on the on policy implications of incarcerated parents with child support arrears and other collateral consequences of criminal convictions. Professor Kamet, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much. <laughs> Next, we have Professor Alex Vitale. Now, Mr. Vitale is a professor of sociology and coordinator of the Policing and Social Justice Project at Brooklyn College. He has spent the last 25 years writing about policing and consults with both police departments and human rights organizations internationally. 
He also serves on the New York State Advisory Committee of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. He's also the author of today's work, the author of The End of Policing. Professor Vitali, thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. So in the spirit of, of reconsidering all these documents that, that control our lives today, what's the origins of policing? Well, we sometimes like to think of the police as at the center of law enforcement tied to the law, but the history of policing is mostly actually outside the law. It's really about the maintenance of order, which doesn't always require a legal framework. And in my research, what I found is that policing develops usually in relationship to a crisis of legitimacy in the state, usually tied to exploitation. Issues like slavery, colonialism, and industrial exploitation, so that when workers resist through strikes, police are used to manage that problem. When people subjected to colonialism resist, they're subjected to policing to manage them. So everyone talks about the London Metropolitan Police as this model of modern policing, but that model was developed in Ireland during the English occupation of Ireland. Having said that, we don't want to make the mistake then of thinking that the solution to the problems of policing are to just have them fit more closely with the law, because sometimes those legal frames themselves are a source of injustice. The most obvious today would be the war on drugs. Professor Cameron, what are the constitutional justifications for most, most of this policing? Uh, well, police forces were not necessarily organized, as Alex has pointed out, um, for most of the history of this country. Um, it's kind of interesting. It depends on where you look at the police forces. Um, in the North, many of the police forces became organized when they wanted to protect the property interests of landowners who were in big metropolitan areas. Um, and even in the 1800s, in Boston, you had shipping and manufacturing. Um, and those were often protected by uh, private um, uh, companies. But what they decided was that if they could convince the public that it was a public good to have a police force to maintain order and safety, then the state would pay for policing and they would protect their private interests. Mm -hmm. Now in the South, you had the slaveocracy. Right? And the whole point was to protect the property of slave owners, which was slaves. What's really interesting about uh, the different rationales for having police is that, according to the Constitution, which was your question, mm -hmm. policing should be something that redounds to the states. So all local areas should decide how they want to govern themselves, including by police. And the federal government is not supposed to be involved in policing at all. Mm -hmm. But if you look at our history, the Fugitive Slave Acts changed all of that. What they did is that they um, not only protected the property interests of the slaveocracy, but they required people all around the country to round up slaves mm -hmm. and return them to their owners. And what are the implications today? I know we're discussing history, we're going back to the origins, but how exactly is it affecting us today right now? Well, I think the mistake we sometimes make is we think that the fix to policing is to make the police more professional more law enforcement oriented and less biased. And on the surface, that all sounds very appealing. We would like the police to treat people with respect and follow the rules of policing. 
But the problem is that some of those rules themselves are fundamentally unjust. And so I often say, we don't really need narcotics units to get anti-bias training mm -hmm. or to get professionalization training. We need to get rid of the war on drugs. Mm -hmm. That there is no just professional way to carry out the war on drugs. You know, a totally unbiased, professional, low-level drug arrest is still going to ruin some young person's life for no good reason. Right. So we have to not just interrogate the professionalness of the police. We need to ask tough questions about what missions the police have been given and what the legal frameworks are that enable them to take the kind of actions they, they take. Right. So if, policy, so if elected officials are the ones that, that deploy police to, to police us the way they are right now, how, how are elective officials justifying their actions? How, how are they justifying this policing? Well, I want, I want to actually, before I answer that, okay. um, go back to something you just said, which is really important to keep in mind. Um, Sometimes policing itself exacerbates the problems that it is supposed to cure, theoretically. I spent a lot of time looking at the civil consequences of criminal convictions, like what happens when the, when the police state actually has an impact um, on a community and people um, get criminal records as a result of low-level drug offenses and other things. And it, sometimes the impact of having a criminal conviction is worse than the, the criminal conviction itself because um, those things stay with you for life. Right. and they impede the ability to actually exercise citizenship. Mm -hmm. um, and so I including think that, deportations. Including in deportations, um, uh, yeah, as a matter of fact. And, um, and I would say um, being engaged in the citizenry, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the biggest collateral consequences, of course, has been voting rights, right? And the minute that people get felony convictions in many states, their right to participate in the civic um, the, the, the civic politics, right, is curtailed significantly. But I want to suggest that that history is all racialized, mm -hmm. right? After this, um, the Civil War, um, which is another issue, right? Like, what did the Civil War actually do to policing? Um, but stay for a moment with this question of the Civil War being um, fought ostensibly to free the slaves and to fight the slave order, mm -hmm. right? Um, after those amendments were passed, one of the things that the states did was they looked to see what kinds of um, criminal infractions could be pinned on African Americans. And they changed all of their legislatures so that um, a, a, a felony and sometimes a misdemeanor can uh, keep one from voting. So they were trying to find ways um, to dilute political power. Um, and they did this all throughout the South and in some places in the North as well. You're referring um, to Jim Crow, right? Yeah, and Jim Crow is its own thing. I mean, when you look at Jim Crow, that's about how we, a collateral consequence of um, voting, which, you know, keeps us from getting the political power to change the laws mm -hmm. like Jim Crow, right? right? And not even just the denial of the right to vote, but the denial of life. I mean, yes. the expansion of the death penalty the advent of convict leasing systems where people were worked to death by the yes. tens of thousands in the South to build the new South economy. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, all of those regimes, though, were lawful. 
they existed within state legal frameworks. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by we can't just look to the police to be neutral enforcers of the law. Agreed. I mean, one of the interesting things about this past election in the midterms is that we're still fighting to reenfranchise felons um, mm -hmm. all across this country. Um, in Florida, they finally passed um, uh, an amendment to the law in 2018 that restores voting rights to felons who are disproportionately black. Mm -hmm. This is a century and a half after these laws were passed. Right. And that's the whole purpose of this program is just considering where we started as a nation and how yes. it still affects us right now. Because one of the things that whenever we discuss these issues, most often people say that we should forget about the past. Why are we still discussing slavery? Why are we still discussing Jim Crow? Shouldn't we be focusing on the future because that we're stuck to the past, we're never gonna move forward. Well, how do you, how do you address a question like that? So one of the things that we often hear about the racial disproportions in the criminal justice system, the, the people being arrested, the number of people in prison, mm -hmm. We hear the police say, well, we just go where the crime is. Mm. We just go where the 911 calls. We're not racist. We're just, you know, responding to what the community demands. Right. And what I say to that is that to the extent that that's true, and it is somewhat true, but certainly not completely true. There's a lot of discretion, especially around the drug war. But even where that's true, what that does is that erases the factors that shaped the way our communities look today. Mm. There's a reason why some of these problems are highly concentrated in the places they are, poor communities, communities of color, because of a long legacy of systematic exploitation. Right. The refusal to allow African Americans to accumulate wealth, and this is not just about slavery and Jim Crow, this is about the Obama administration bailing out the banks and not the homeowners. Mm -hmm. That was one of the biggest expropriations of black wealth in modern history because the vast majority of people detrimentally affected by that who had their homes foreclosed on were poor people of color. Yeah. And it certainly didn't start there. I, when you think about historically um, the transfer of wealth to white Americans from black Americans, um, we think about this as a, an, an, a consequence of slavery, right? And so when you hear about reparations and people talking about making blacks whole for hundreds of years of forced labor, um, what people don't realize is that many of these, um, these problems actually were fomented by the government itself, mm -hmm. right? If you look at World War II, um, they had all sorts of GI bills and uh, and other um, FHA, FHA loans, loans uh, which you know were precluded to blacks, right? Mm -hmm. The government itself enforced uh, racially restrictive covenants for much of the 20th century. The government itself invented redlining, mm -hmm. right? Which not only transferred wealth um, to white communities, right? Because black communities were considered high risk mm -hmm. under their own uh, protocols, right? But it made being in a mixed or, or black community um, a, a, a risk, mm -hmm. right? So your property values went down, right, to the exclusion of your ability to build wealth mm -hmm. over time. And so uh, I think that those policies rep probably represented one of the biggest transfers of wealth mm -hmm. away from black Americans who were disproportionately 
um, moved into um, rental apartments, right, where they didn't build equity to secure their children's lives, or into public housing, right, where they created conditions um, that, much like the ones that you're mm -hmm. talking about, um, uh, which were harsh because they they devalue the lives of the people there, and then they blame them for the conditions that they were in. Right. But the government actually did this. This reminds me of the current affirmative action uh, litigation, where many proponents, well, many people against affirmative action are saying that because these things happened in the past, I had nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Like I wasn't a, my I wasn't a slave owner. Um, how like why should I have to pay back people that? Um, Suffer something centuries ago. How does that affect people t today? Like, how do you answer that question? Well, first of all, this is not just about the the ancient past. Mm -hmm. These are about practices that go on today. Right. But also, we do have to take affirmative action mm -hmm. to acknowledge that we don't all start in the same point, mm -hmm. and that if we have any interest in creating real equality of opportunity and real kind of uh, healthy communities through, throughout our society, then we have to take steps. Now, maybe it's not the kind of affirmative action that we've had that's mostly benefited a few folks trying to get into elite law schools and medical schools, you know. Maybe it is uh, the kind of affirmative action that calls for healthcare for everyone as a universal right dramatic expansions in the minimum wage. You know, to this day, farm workers and domestic workers are still excluded from most labor protections. And of yes. course, those are professions that are primarily performed by people of color. I think it's really important how we talk about these issues, right? When I think affirmative action, what comes to my mind is the massive transfer of wealth through the tax code yep. from everyday working people to the richest people in the country. Right, and it, the reason it's affirmative action is because they made those rules, right? right? Um, but how this is racialized is that they sold this bill of goods to people, um, and they have historically used, you know, stigmatizing rhetoric to make people um, feel like uh, that they that we were operating in a country where, you know, if I gained a benefit, you lost something, or vice versa. And the real problem is that when you talk about today, right, and you talk about the situations that most people uh, find themselves in, uh, we don't have a way of having a conversation about race that people can really uh, um, sink their teeth into. Right. So it's almost completely exploited by the current people like the current occupant of the White House, right? Um, so, for example, um, when you say... Uh, that uh, that black folks are historically oppressed in this country, right? Um, that's true, right? There's systemic racism. There is personal prejudice. There are all of those things that reinforce each other. But when you tell white people who don't have wealth, right, that somehow they're in a better position than other people, they can't see it because they don't see their own privilege, right? right? But they too are oppressed. The point though is if you're gonna talk about it, Understand that they're oppressed for completely different reasons, right? Black people are oppressed because of systemic racism and hundreds of years of, of stigmatizing rhetoric, right? White people are oppressed because they bought into that rhetoric and allowed the people that run this country to transfer wealth from them hmm. because they're, they voted for policies that went against their own economic interest. 
And now they're suffering from that. But the way that they're coping with it is to blame other people rather than to recognize that we've been divided and conquered all along. And, and the U.S. is the master of erasure of history. And I give a lot of credit to Brian Stevenson, for instance, in his efforts yes. to try to force America to come to terms with its history. Because, you know, the, the legacies of lynching and Jim Crow are not just relegated to the past, they are forgotten. They are, there's no attempt to actually come to grips with that. If you go to Germany, there's a constant public conversation and public uh, uh, commemoration of the Holocaust, of the rise of Nazism. It's part of the public conversation in a way that slavery and Jim Crow just is not here. And I think part of the problem that I come up against is not just the erasure, but also the attempt to turn the problems into race of race into things like microaggressions and implicit bias. Mm -hmm. And yes, people have unconscious prejudices that they need to get in touch with, but this frames the problem of race as ones of you know individual level decision making that again erases the role of structural factors. And so uh, some of the work that I do is actually arguing against implicit bias training for police. Because this assumes that the problems of race and policing are about a completely autonomous decision-making by individual police officers. Mm -hmm. And my response is, on the one hand, there's plenty of explicit racism in policing, and we, we should be calling that out for what it is, not claiming that it's all accidental. But also, the racism is baked into the mission of policing, into the institutional orientation, and it's at that level that we need to get at it. You know, while uh, preparing for this uh, interview, I read over the 2015 Ferguson Report by the Department of Justice, and what fascinated me, what stuck out to me the most was just a disproportionate impact that it had on blacks, African-Americans. And oftentimes when you litigate these cases or bring them up, people always want proof. What proof do you have that this is actually happening? Mm -hmm. And interesting enough, um, the report actually mentioned emails that were sent amongst many of the policymakers, uh, court personnel. I mean, these emails were egregious. Uh, some of these emails uh, painted Obama as a monkey. Um, they were speaking uh, I guess they're uh, speaking about African-Americans in, in a derogatory way. I mean, these are tons of emails, right, that when you bring them up, people, people try to run away from the fact that there's a lot of racism, <laughs> right? And I guess what I'm trying to get at right now is that if racism is, 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 is influencing the way that policing is affecting uh, people of color, like where, where does this come from? And the reason why I say this is because, uh, Professor Cameron, you've done a lot of work around metaphors <laughs> and how elective officials essentially plant these ideas into us in order to justify this type of policing. So could you speak a bit about metaphors and how those came about? Yes, definitely. But I, I also want to note that in Ferguson, one of the interesting things about Ferguson is we tend to think of Ferguson as an uprising that happened around the murder of Michael Brown and uh, aggressive and murderous police, right? But the real impetus for the uprising in Ferguson was the fact that it was an overwhelmingly white police force. It was a primarily black community. And the police were using traffic fines and stops 
to bleed the community dry of their resources and balance the budget of the city on their backs. Right. And not to cut you off, sorry, mm-hmm. but this is what I meant by, you know, when I was in practice, mm-hmm. I would see many of these laws that supposedly are meant to protect society, so mm-hmm. they're being abused to, to, to put yeah. abuse against people. Right. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, so to your point about, um, like, I, I do write a lot about metaphor because I really want people to think about... Um, the way that we do policy making in this country, um, all along, um, uh, you, we've been subjected to racialized metaphors about who black people are, mm-hmm. right? And what it does is it allows um, uh, policymakers to make laws that are harmful mm-hmm. uh, to people um, while uh, making people feel, and this is where the implicit bias stuff mm-hmm. comes in, as if. I'm not racist, right? I just am responding mm-hmm. to the fact that people are a certain way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I've written a lot about um, metaphors around the family and how we look at family and the, the way that family uh, law and uh, has been developed over time make certain assumptions about family, right? right? Mm-hmm. So the one I'm thinking about in terms of metaphor and stigmatizing rhetoric is around things like welfare queens, right? Which we've been hearing about for decades now. Um, the government uses metaphors like that, um, which are historical. They've been talking about black women and painting black women as irresponsible, right? Um, around child rearing. Um, but this has been going on since the days of slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, so what the government, what those policymakers really intended to do was to defund the, the um, social safety net of the state, right? And they realized through um, a lot of work um, in the social sciences that most people in this country thought uh, welfare was a black issue, right? That most people who got welfare were black. Um, and as long as in their minds, in the public imagination, they could think of those people who were receiving benefits they weren't getting as black, they would vote against them. In reality, most people who received welfare were children, white children, for that matter. Mm-hmm. And that's how they have historically gotten people to vote against their own interests. We see it now with this tax cut, right? I, you know, I can't imagine why people weren't up in arms about the fact that the, the, the ruling body um, in Congress was transferring the wealth of the entire um, country into the hands of a half a percent of people, mm. right? But what they do is they talk about it as being used for all sorts of things, for immigration, mm. right? For work on the border, for um, because, you know, we are going to protect you against those other people. Mm-hmm. Historically, you know, r- rhetorically speaking, those other people were black folks, right? But now they're immigrants, they're Muslims, mm-hmm. right? And they're anybody that um, they can point a finger at to you t- so that um, they can rob you blind while you're worried about somebody else getting a benefit that you're not getting. It's the mm-hmm. shiny object. Right. And the flip side of that transfer of wealth and the austerity and budget cutting that goes with it is that what we've seen is it's produced these tremendous social problems like mass homelessness, mass untreated mental illness, mass involvement in black markets as kind of employment of last result. And then those problems are turned over to the police to manage. Mm -hmm. But what tools do they have to manage those problems? They don't have housing. They don't have drug treatment services. They don't have mental health slots. They got guns Mm. and handcuffs 
and ticket books and coercion and threats, and these are not the tools that communities need to solve those problems. So we need to, again, interrogate why is it that we can't have drug treatment on demand? Why is it that we can't have community-based mental health facilities? Why is it that we can't have supportive housing programs, but we can always have more police? We can always, there's always money to open a new jail. Yeah, and you, you made this point really well in your book, which is that we have grown to use policing to solve social problems. And I think we see that manifest in all kinds of different ways. Mm -hmm. um, and we are so used to it that we can't even imagine a world without mm -hmm. policing now, right? What is, has resulted in is a true failure of imagination. Yeah, this is, uh, we were talking earlier about this, that uh, there's a, a great new history of the relationships between the NYPD and the black community in New York called Fight the Power by the uh, historian Clarence Taylor. And in it, it shows how the black community in New York has understood that policing is fundamentally not in their interest, has always been a tool of racial oppression or of enabling racialized oppression. And yet the solutions that tend to be organized around are things like community review boards mm -hmm. or put a particular officer in jail. And it doesn't seem like that systematic analysis of policing is reflected in the demands that the community often rallies around. Mm -hmm. And that's a little bit where this failure of imagination mm -hmm. is, which of course is also driven by a lack of political power. It causes people to try to think, well, what might we actually be able to get? Mm -hmm. And I think one of the exciting things about the moment we're in right now, as depressing as the orange buffoon is, uh, there is something stirring. There are movements in action. And I think now is not the time for half-assed solutions. Mm -hmm. Now is the time to put what we really want on the table and see what we can get out of that. I think that's so right. You know. One way to think about this, too, is to not limit our understanding of the police state and policing to criminal justice only. Right. Right. Um, I work primarily, and my work for a long time was with um, incarcerated mothers, right? And so this is where I bring a gender analysis to this conversation, because the truth is that when we think about criminal justice and uh, policing and um, overreach, overreaching and aggressive policing, um, we think typically about black men, right, who are victimized by police, but there have been many black women who are in the same position. Black women are the fastest growing block of prisoners in the country, right? And the murder of, um, of trans women surpasses everyone in terms of percentages, right? But even beyond that, if we think about this, not just like a police state that you've pointed out, like it has tentacles um, in all aspects of our lives, Think about the punitive state that manifests in other ways and the place where women tend to, to meet um, the police state are in institutions like courts, family courts, um, uh, welfare, welfare offices, offices exactly. right? Um, uh, immigration courts, right? And at the border, as we know, because these are the places where surveillance is at a high, right? Where communities are surveilled um, for the express purposes of moving them people into the criminal justice system because the way we think about who they are mm. means that 
people see them as um, having latent criminality to begin with. And so when you combine that with a surveillance system in poor communities, what you have is people's children being taken away from them in family courts because our understanding of black parents is that they're deficient in some way rather than they're just poor and victimized by a system that doesn't allow them to care for their children, right? Um, we apparently don't care about putting babies in cages at the border because they don't look like the people who make the rules, right? And so when you think about um, a system, interlocking systems of subordination, right, that poor families have to deal with, it's not just the police. We have to think about those systems as reinforcing each other. Some people talk about that as the carceral state. Indeed. That, that the logic of the prison has moved into our schools, our welfare offices, and our communities through policing. We, we had this horrible incident here of Jasmine Headley, who went to a welfare office to try to get childcare benefits so she could go back to work. She, they were jerking her around about the benefits. There are no seats left. She sits on the floor. That's breaking the rules. She won't do what they, you know, then they escalate, bring in the police you know, manhandle her and her one-year-old child. It's just horrible. And it's like a prison in these welfare offices, you know, mm -hmm. the constant security, the metal detectors, the harassment, the pointless authoritarianism that, that shapes the way these offices, unfortunately, are often run. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just had to recommend a couple of books. Beth Ritchie's book, Arrested Justice, Excellent book. is a really great uh, look at the ways in which women are disadvantaged in all these institutions mm -hmm. systematically. And of course, Andrea Ritchie's with a T, Invisible No More, about the history of police abuse towards women, or women of color in particular. Absolutely. And I would add to that um, Karen Gustafson's uh, Criminalization of Poverty, yep. where she talks about uh, these questions. So I, wanna, I would like to see us um, have a broader conversation around policing in this country that recognizes all of the places um, where these systems intersect um, to create problems in community. We're, we're, acad we're academics. We're required to put out some suggested readings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. And on the website, you can, you, uh, you'll find the links to all these books. So what would it take to turn things around? I mean, we mentioned political power. We mentioned the disenfranchisement. Many people with felonies down in the South. I mean, what, what would it really take? Because we can't take a half-assed approach. We need to be very, uh, very aggressive. But what would it take? Because it seems like th these issues are so psychologically like, deep, it almost feels overwhelming and daunting to even do something about it. But yeah. What would it take? I, but I think everybody doesn't believe the hype. That's the thing. You uh -huh. know, you can fool some of the people some of the time. And what I've seen, because I, I have to admit, I was somewhat depressed before the midterms, right? <laughs> but what I'm seeing is this groundswell of people, and I do believe we are the majority of people in this country, right, who understand that what we need are politicians to start to, you know, speak to people like they're grown, right? And like they can do two things at the same time, right? You don't have to just talk about the white working class and you have to talk about black identity politics. The fact of the matter is that, you know, um, we're working people in this country, right, have issues um, in common, but somebody has to be able to articulate a vision where they can talk about race without running away from it, mm -hmm. right? Yep. And they can basically say that, we talk about working class people, that's black folks too, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
And so you have working class whites and you've got working class black. They're working people mm -hmm. that we have to be able to articulate a vision for. And we have to be unapologetic about that and about speaking about race mm -hmm. to that end, right? And if we can find one of these politicians who can actually bring the majority of people in this country who really want to see a value change, right? And that's really what mm -hmm. your book is talking about. It's mm -hmm. talking about a value shift from using the police to solve all our problems because we don't know what else to do, mm -hmm. right? To, um, you know, things like affordable housing, health care, things that we all need. It's, a new, it's trying to be a new vision of what justice means. Right. Because for too long, we've come to equate justice with revenge. Mm -hmm. And basically, mm -hmm. our criminal justice system has become a giant revenge factory. And we need to reconceptualize what we mean by justice. And that's about building people up, building communities up instead of tearing them down. Mm -hmm. And I've spent the last year and a half traveling all over the country, I've been in dozens of cities, working with community groups, and organizing is happening. And I don't know that we're quite ready for the right politician yet, because we do have more minds to change on the ground. Mm -hmm. But all across the country, Concrete organizing is happening, trying to get police out of schools, trying to get community-based mental health facilities, mm -hmm. trying to get real approaches to our drug problem. Mm -hmm. But they're not focused on creating national leaders and national, you know, they're solving problems in their communities. And I think we need to look in our own communities and say, where are these struggles happening? and how can I directly support them mm -hmm. instead of thinking, where's the perfect politician who I can give my $100 to and he'll mm -hmm. fix everything or mm -hmm. she will fix everything for us? Because mm -hmm. that person is not going to be able to do it no matter how well-intentioned they are if we haven't done the work on the ground. Fix us. I agree completely. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that I work at uh, CUNY School of Law and we train the best activist lawyers in the country to go out. Um, and they're, those are lawyers who use law as one tool for social justice, not the tool, right? A lot of them are organizers too and are organizing locally on issues but are seeing the relationship between issues too. Right. We can't be single issue people anymore. No, no, no. You know, we have to recognize that you know, that my freedom is bound up with yours. And mm -hmm. that's what allyship is really about, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about, you know, white people saying, oh, you know, I recognize oppression. It's about I can't be free until we're all free. We used to right? call that solidarity before yes. we wiped out the labor movement, <laughs> you know. Mm -hmm. And the unions, you know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Do you have faith in the new criminal justice reform policy? You, you're thinking like in Washington, the, the First Step Act? And yeah, the stuff? First Step Act. And there seems to be somewhat of a shift towards more restorative justice as opposed to punitive. At least that's what we see in the news. You know, you have Van Jones uh, partnering with one of the Koch brothers. <laughs> and yeah. So, I mean, I see that as a symptom mm -hmm. of all the work that's happening on the ground. Okay. I don't see that as a solution. It's an, it's an attempt to, to deal with the fact that the logic on the ground is changing, that mm -hmm. we no longer accept the idea that the solution to all our problems is putting more people in prison. Mm -hmm. And so that's scary to people mm -hmm. who built their power, mm -hmm. their political careers on that logic. And they're trying to figure out how to adjust to this new reality on the ground. I'm not invested 
in that debate in Washington, because I don't think in this moment it's going to get us anything that we really need. Mm -hmm. I'm focused on continuing to change the logic on the ground. Hmm. Could you speak a bit about the warrior mentality that you mentioned in your book? In policing? Yes. Yeah, so we we want the, there's a, a very understandable desire in our communities to have police who treat us with basic respect and dignity. But, and, and then as a result, we support various training programs, implicit bias training and de-escalation training and community policing orientation and stuff. But this imagines that it's possible for the police to be friendly while being told by our elected officials to wage a war on crime and a war mm -hmm. on drugs and a war on immigrants and a war on gangs. And they can't be friendly, they're going to be warriors. Mm -hmm. And so while we have a problem of this warrior mindset, you know, of uh, escalation, of disrespect, a lot of that is driven by the fact that the people that they're policing resent the war on drugs resent the war on crime, resent the criminalization of poverty. That's what got Eric Garner killed. Hmm. He was tired, he was sick and tired of constant, unjust, purposeless harassment. And when he said no more, they killed him. Hmm. Not because they woke up in the morning and said, let's go kill Eric Garner, but because they have a fundamental disregard for people's well-being, and they were told to go out and clean that street corner up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think there's a schism in this country about the meaning of policing, though, mm -hmm. right? It may well be that black communities recognize that the police act like an occupying army, but white, white communities don't seem to feel that way. They actually do mm -hmm. think the police works for them. I mean, I think it's been that's been illustrated over and over again all year long where whites have called right. the police for customer service right. when they're sharing space with black communities right. and permit people, patties. Permit patties, exactly. <laughs> they're in spaces with black people and they feel like the role of the police, and maybe this has been engendered by our current politics, right, where mm -hmm. they can be more aggressively overt about it. Mm -hmm. The role of policing is to create a safe space for them, and that includes removing people that make them uncomfortable. Yep. Right? And so I think we have to talk about this question with a little bit more nuance, and, you know, you're right. It's not one savior that's going to, as a politician, who's going to save us. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we've been in that trap for a long period of time, but there has to be a, a national conversation about the meaning of We have to build to that. Policing. No, we have to get to that point, yeah. And I would say that this is one step in the process. Yeah. You know, what I realized when we were uh, developing this podcast is that a lot of people are interested in helping, but they just don't know what to do. Yes. As an individual, what could you possibly do to impact what's going on right now? Mm -hmm. but what advice would you give to one person that came out to this conversation, wants to do something about it, but maybe he's not, doesn't know what to do? What, is, is it in terms of having a conversation with somebody? But what advice would you give to that one individual person? Hmm. It's a really good question. In, in my house... Thursday night is meeting nights. Okay. Somebody's going to a meeting. <laughs> a neighborhood meeting, a union mm -hmm. meeting, a, a social justice meeting. Sometimes the meetings are boring. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they're frustrating. But it's just the price of doing business. 
if we want anything positive to happen, we have to take some responsibility for rolling up our sleeves and getting into the muck of everyday politics. Mm -hmm. And we shouldn't have any illusions that we're all going to be civil rights heroes and that this is going to be a simple arc of justice, you know. There's going to be setbacks and frustrations and splits with people, you know. But we've we've created this illusion that someone's going to come and save us if we just have the right attitude at the polling place. And I just don't think that's true. I, I also agree that we have to focus locally. Um, this, this really became obvious to me as um, the courts, the federal courts, were being completely overrun by right-wing activists who now represent um, the judges um, in mass on the federal courts, people that we have traditionally looked for mm -hmm. to, for, to um, save us um, through civil rights litigation. And um, the reason they're there, and I think this goes right to the question right. that you're asked, the reason that they're there is because 50 years ago, conservative right-wingers came up with a strategy to put their issues on the table, right? Mm -hmm. To take back the courts and to, to stop um, the, the uh, democratization of this country, which is what happens when you get you know, people of color mm -hmm. um, you know, in the ascendancy, right. right? And they wanted to roll that back. We need a 50-year plan, right? right? to, to exactly. preserve our democracy. Hopefully um, it won't be 50 years, but yeah. <laughs> but they were willing, you know, to do what it takes. They, they funded right-wing think tanks, right? They funded the yep. federal judiciary. They started the Federalist Society. Mm -hmm. They did all of this work while we were thinking, yay, we've made it. We have the Civil Rights Act, right? right. Let's move forward. We're going to be free, mm -hmm. right? We have to start organizing um, with the long view. Not just yeah. the next election, but a cycle. Right, and this is what we discussed uh, last week about yes. organizing. Because right now, I would say a lot of conservative uh, right-wing people uh, are, are, are organizing just as well as they were 50 years ago. Indeed. So what I want to do with this podcast is just to bring brilliant minds like yourself to come on here. <laughs> no, I'm serious, because I, I know nothing compared to you. <laughs> so I want to bring brilliant minds like yourself in order, to, in order to get these topics out there, because there is a big interest in this and I really can't thank you enough for coming out today. And thank you My for pleasure. doing this. We yes. really appreciate it. Definitely. Much needed. Yeah, so now I want to, um, a couple of things I forgot to mention in the beginning, is which is the importance of civic engagement. It's one of those things that we all have to be very active about. And when I consider what a civic um, engaged person is, it's somebody who's responsible. It's somebody who sees himself as part of a larger fabric of society. You know, it's very appealing to put yourself in a bubble. There's a lot of things going on. I understand that. We all have work to do. It's difficult to stay on top of everything. But to me, you really see what the world is like when you get on the subway, right? When you get on the subway, that's when you really see the world. That homeless person who goes around asking for money, the homeless person who smells terrible and you want to get away from them, that's partly due to the system that we're living in right now. And we can't sit back and accept the status quo because like I mentioned earlier, if we sit down and, and, and accept the status quo, then the future, the democracy for our children won't be here. And this is a big reason why I'm doing this. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, really Jonathan. Thank it. you for doing this. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you. I really have a lot. Like, there's no way I could have done this without the people around me. So we have the executive producers, Andre Garrett in the back. Can we please give him a round of applause? 
We have Marcus Sandifer, the other executive producer. Thank you very much. We have the associate producer and the showrunner, Jorge Navia. And the podcast advisor, Hazel Weiser. <laughs> and social media and marketing, Zani Jackson Garrett. Okay. I also want to thank Civic Hall for allowing us to have this event. Andrew Rasij, he's the founder and CEO. Shanika Ramdeen, director of cultural events. And Jabari Noel, events and welcome desk associate. This was also a production of Arius Productions, KOOE Group and hard-headed media. Next time, we're, we're trying to do these episodes every month. If you know people that were as brilliant as these two over here, <laughs> please let them know about us because we want to get these minds on here. We want to get this education out there. We want to be civically engaged so we can all be uh, better informed citizens. Mm -hmm. So I just want to uh, thank everybody for coming out. You all give yourself a round of applause. <laughs>